Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you so much for listening to Try Love. It's a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast, or you can also find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org. Uh, get movies. Uh, you can actually buy movies there. Um, the rental and purchasing of films is available. I, I looked at myself in the camera, and th- that's always a mistake. I always get lost. Uh, check out Trilon at Trilon.org and at Trilon Cinema across social media. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. Uh, you can often find me with chocolate inside my body, and you can f- uh, find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Damn, that was the direction I was going to go because I was going to say, and I still will say, I love chocolate. And so I'd be pretty yeah. easy to kill. Uh, I'm Cody Narvison, and you can find me in Blue Sky at Cody Narvison. We're all tired. I'm Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at PunishTake. My name is Aaron, and instead of a quote for this movie, I will just invite you to imagine just a, a shot of like me sitting in my office uh, as as we're recording, and maybe it's like a 15-minute shot slowly panning around my room is like a maybe like a drop of water, maybe drips from the ceiling onto my desk at kind of rhythmic intervals. Just kind of picture that. Uh, and you can finally follow me on Twitter at uh, RBPlease if you would like to. I would like to, uh, and I hope our listeners would also like to. Um, today's film that we'll be discussing was not part of playing as part of a direct series, I don't think. Uh, just there, we got a recent restoration. Aaron will go into it. I do want to direct the listeners' attention real quick. Uh, without spoiling anything, the uh, film that we're going to talk about today is part of a broader film movement called Slow Cinema. We have covered a couple of those movies on this podcast before. I wanted to call them out specifically episode 111, Damnation, 1988. Uh, I, strangely, and, one of our uh, highest performing episodes, it was, if I remember. Uh, it was a really fun. We should remember to talk about that the because it was a really fun response. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was so yes. strange. The one like it's maybe the most surprising, single most surprising episode that, that it like, could be. Cults of Satanists are maybe mistaking that for something else for the first like <laughs> minute or so, and it's like counting as a view. Yeah, you know, uh, it's possible. I, I don't know how sound sound cause metrics work, but we should uh, sort of add the Satanist filter for just for the real numbers. Uh, also, episode 141, Uncle Boon Me, Who Can Recall His Past Lives by a Pitchapung Warrior Seth the Cool. Uh, 2010, check those episodes out if you enjoy this discussion, because I think we're probably going to give it a, at least a similar-ish lens as we gave those movies. But yeah, uh, as Cody pointed out in the chat, long ago, uh, as that one My Chemical Romance song says, long ago, we covered those movies uh, more than 100 episodes ago for both of those, if you can believe it. Um, check those out in the feed. Check out our feed for any other movies you've seen uh, or want to hear us talk about. But uh, this is the part of the show where I need to toss to my good co-host, Aaron, because he tells us a little bit about the movie in the patented Aaron Grossman summary. Yes, indeed, folks. Yes, two uh, two kind of notes up front. One, I still have a bit of a cough, so please pray for me uh, talking through this. Two, uh, Jason stepped on a little bit of what I was going to say, so I'll, have to, I'll, I'll improvise a little bit, go off script here. Uh, but we are talking about Twilight, 1990 film, directed by Georgi Feyer. Is that how we think that's pronounced? Uh, probably. I'm okay um, with that. It is based 
on the uh, based on the novella by Friedrich Durenmatt, uh named The Pledge Requiem for the Detective Novel. Uh, the film stars Peter Howman uh, as a retiring homicide detective uh, who becomes obsessed with tracking down a serial killer responsible for the murder of a, uh, a young girl kind of deep in the forests of Hungary. Um, that's kind of ostensibly the plot. Uh, the effect is, I think, quite a bit different maybe than the the kind of plot synopsis would, would have you believe. Um, this is, as Jason mentioned, uh, yet another film that we're covering that could be considered uh, slow cinema. Did a little bit of research into that uh, kind of term, and that's not like a movement per se, but, but that kind of genre kind of style of filmmaking. Um, my understanding uh, is that film critic Jonathan Romney first used the term in 2004 uh, to describe uh, Tsai Ming Ling's uh, Goodbye Dragon Inn. Uh, we've covered a few films. You you mentioned Damnation. Uh, I think something like maybe even Millennium Mambo maybe mm-hmm. would be considered like slow cinema. Um, I think that like that and even I think this film to a certain extent is it kind of stands a little bit apart from something like Damnation. Uh, just I mean, it's it's hard to describe something like yeah. Twilight as uh, maybe like, you know, kind of pulse pounding. But there are moments uh, as oh, opposed yeah. to something like Damnation that, that there are not moments. And I, I love that it's one of my favorite films we've covered. But so slow cinema, right? Uh, kind of long drawn out shots, not as much dialogue. Usually it's kind of creating like an atmosphere uh, as opposed to like new information uh, being kind of brought up in, uh, in like a scene by, you know, shots and like quick cutting and editing and whatnot. Usually it's by kind of like the slow introduction uh, of more elements into the frame as maybe the camera moves very slowly or the kind of the transformation of elements that have like previously existed in the shot that like slowly morph over time until a certain point, like five minutes into a scene, you're like, that guy is looking a little differently than he was five minutes ago. And and maybe that, that, that does has an effect. Right. Um, so, uh, I think like, sorry, this is a very weird summary, but like, uh, Bellatar, of course we have to bring up, uh, is a good reference point for this film. Um, he worked as a like general consultant, uh, on this film, uh, from like a filmmaking standpoint, um, the director of Twilight, uh, uh, Fair, would help produce Tars, kind of generally understood to be his masterpiece, uh, Satan Tango. Uh, he would also like partially write uh, Tars' film Verkmeister Harmonies, uh, which I believe we'll be covering uh, in a few months, yep. maybe as the Trilon shows it. Uh, so, but, uh, other than that, Twilight was underseen. It was underappreciated for many, many years. The kind of only way to, to watch it was to watch like a torrent rip of like a VHS copy of the film, um, which like that combined with like the black and white nature of the cinematography made it kind of a bit of a different experience than watching this kind of new 4k restoration, uh, which came out this year, uh, the national Institute, uh, Hungarian film archive, uh, released it. So pretty much no one had seen this thing for like 25 to 30 years. There was like a thousand watches registered on Letterboxd up until, uh, the, the kind of remaster. So, um, mm-hmm. yes, uh, the other last thing to mention in this very, very rambling, introduction is that there's been a bunch of adaptations of the original novella over the years, something like seven. Um, apart from this film, also notable is Sean Penn's 2001 film, The Pledge, starring Jack Nicholson. Yeah, um, That novel this, sounds like a banger, huh? By the way, the, it sounds really uh, good. I've, I've heard it's good. Yes, I also did a skim and I'm like, ooh, this would have been a good one to maybe read for research, but I didn't. 
Um, so anyway, this has gone on longer than a scene in this film. So Jason, please. LOL. Uh, yeah, I was going to say me. a thousand people before the remaster had seen this. Uh, and currently there are about 3000 people in Letterboxd who've listed it as logged. And I think those first thousand actually just got out of their first screening. So finally, we're looking forward to some critical thought about this movie. Um, no, I, I do like, I think that there is a good place to start here by just dropping us into the moment. And I want to put Cody on the spot a little bit because he came out pretty positive about the movie yesterday, positive enough that he did something I've never seen him do like immediately after the movie. Um, and that was purchased the poster to the film, the 24 by 36 theater size poster for the remaster of twilight. It's great. It's a wonderful piece of art. You should look it up. Know that Cody's got that in his home. Uh, it's and his, chilling. And his home addresses. Uh, chilling uh, to look at. It is, I, it is quite I, frightening. I said very uh, aggressively uh, in the moment that it is very unlikely that I will ever hang that up in my apartment because the ma- majority of the image is like a silhouette of the, the giant um, without a face, like a, a hand extended forward as if like mid beckon, mm-hmm. um, just sort of probably, designed probably, to scare the shit out of, of you on your nightly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> certainly, <laughs> certainly. But yeah, yeah. To that point, I definitely felt, um, yeah, only a couple times previously, I don't think in, in, in front of y'all where I felt compelled to get the poster immediately after watching it. Um, that was me responding to that point, Jason. I didn't what know were the other posters? other kinds of ramping up. Oh, uh, the Thin Man sequel, and then um, it happened oh, one night, right? And it happened one night. It's right is, behind uh, you now. Listeners can't see it. Yeah. It's, it's behind me. Right it's now. right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I believe be- I've done that once, uh, or maybe twice. I think. Oh, twice. Yeah, I did it with uh, first Funeral Parade of Roses, and mm. then um, the uh, Edward Yang poster. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, I've only done it with one that was actually hanging, and it was the Police Story remasters, or the one and two when they got uh, Janus Films uh, Criterion releases. Anyway, I wanted to put us in the moment because I was not able to sit next to Cody and Harry and Kelly as they were watching the film last night. I showed up a little bit late, had to sit by next to somebody else. Let's, we'll talk about the actual in-theater movie experience because of this, because I think it is like really an interesting counterpoint to the what was happening in the movie. But um, I want to put us in the moment. Like, uh, Cody, we're, we, we, I sat down in the movie uh, we have I, literally, I think one of the the first line that gets said, I don't know if it's of the movie, but if when I was watching it was, um, you know, a child has been killed in the woods uh, or has been found in the woods dead. Um, and they sort of start their uh, sojourn out there to sort of discover what they can put us in that moment. Tell me how you were feeling about it in like in real time, uh, because we like as I understand, it was maybe like three or four shots to the entire movie by that 10 minute point or so. Uh, how are you feeling about it and what's going on uh, at that at that time? Yeah, a lot's going on. I'm uh, controlling my breathing. I'm probably digesting food. Um, it's been a little while since I had a snack. I had bunch of crunch. I was trying to eat my bunch of crunch very, very slowly and quietly. Oh so wow, that that's, that's, not, that's a great theater. One snack. of the worst. Well, great yeah. snack. Oh, one of the worst snacks right. to try and eat. One, one of the worst to try and eat so, okay. slowly and quietly. The very tasty. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Kind yeah, of loud. Yeah, yeah those he did a pretty good crunch. job. Oh, well, oh, I believe Cody. I, if anybody could, yeah. I, I I've learned a Eating lot a from snack during this film. Is, is really yeah, I don't. Yeah. I should have known better. I needed a sugar jolt and I've learned a lot from, uh, I think, uh, Harry, at the very least, you, maybe others here when we went to see a quiet place and I tried to like open candy mid movie. Uh, and it just, uh, I was the only person. It's right there in the title, man. A relatively quiet place is I believe what Harry turned to me and said, <laughs> as soon as the package went. Um, but yeah, and it, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, approach this i wanted to i mean this is uh, a dry run experience uh for us uh, ostensibly i i'm speaking at least just for me i didn't know a lot going into this yeah. um i knew sort of what to expect but i'm trying to get a read on um what's going on 
visually what the sort of narrative pull of all of this will be. I mean, like broadly kind of do what to expect. I, I browsed the letterbox page before hopping into hopping into my seat. Um, I literally hopped into my seat, but you know, I'm trying to get a read on, you know, what what the sort of visual language is. And I, I think there are a, a couple big circ- like big overarching points that uh, encompass not everything that that I love about this movie, but a, a couple broad points as to like what I think this movie is doing really well uh, and successfully, and and what ultimately makes the film successful, and like getting a sense of what this film is showing us. And this film, it, it, it's it's giving us, it's always giving us something, even when it's giving us nothing. Um, the 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 ultimate, uh, you know, ultimately by the ends of this, you know, spoilers. I don't know why you'd be listening to this if you haven't uh, seen the movie, but more power to you if that's the case. Um, you know, the 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 conclusion of this, you know, it's very un- relatively unsatisfying. Um, the child murder gets away, um, and so it, at at times you feel like, you know, narratively or you know through the scope of this case, you know, we're not getting a whole lot, but visually we're always getting something. Um, what I think one of the first shots that you may be in your seat for Jason was that shot on top of the hill. There's that crowd of people where the, they found the, the child's body and there was a cross and like we mm-hmm. linger on that for a while. And like, there's this uh, idea of payoff and it's like at, at its most base level, the payoff that I felt myself get from that scene, you know, we linger there for a couple minutes, but eventually the camera goes down to ground level. And instead of looking at people from, you know, afar for the remainder of the shot, there's, I can't remember if it was the, the main police chief or somebody else, presumably it was him, but he like walks past the, the, the right past the frame, like right, right. Just like the the thrill of getting a new shot out of you know no cuts nothing really but like the the thrill of seeing somebody's face up close after not getting a lot that that whole shot that was you know it's it's like the smallest payoff you can get and the the film I I, I think does a lot of that and gradually building up as we go you know we we um look out over the the horizon and kind of the the not the bit but like you know the big kind of reveal of the shot is that the the police chief is there like looking at photos and it's like that mirror exactly what he's looking at little bits and and pieces like that so like we're always getting something little bits of payoff even you know it it, in this whole story where we're not actually we're coming away from this successfully visually this movie is is always doing something and and i guess go ahead did you have something harry Oh, no, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I think uh, in the New York Times review of The Restoration, the writer called Mm -hmm. it a movie so minimalist it approaches maximalism. Uh, And I I think that that's like exactly what you're saying. It's it's like the movie does such a good job of training you to have so little that when something happens, it's fucking shocking. Right. It's like, oh, my God, it's pulse pounding, like you said. Right. And and we need to accumulate those things. We need to cherish those things because by the end of it, you know, we're we're left with something. It it feels incomplete, but I think ultimately that, and this is kind of the second, second point of, you know, why I found myself really drawn towards this. And I guess by virtue, it is maybe a result of us being able to map something like this so closely to, you know, other kind of police mystery thrillers, something like Zodiac, something like Memories of Murder, where like maybe, maybe even the majority of the thing is, you know, like, witnessing these um you know that these police chiefs these people involved with the case and like kind of watching their humanity you know get tested deteriorate deteriorate over the course of this and the question of whether or not we're able to like whether they're able to come away from this and even when the result is less than thrilling just like that that question is you know is getting asked throughout you know the whole movie and by the end of it you know where we end up it's like well it's it's inconclusive it's you know it's a it's a character study it's very consciously meditative but it's also very consciously um incomplete uh and it allows you kind of to project your own sorts of um you know your your takeaways your your misgivings about about this case it's not 
I don't know, maybe everybody here, maybe people feel differently and I'll, I'll try to wrap this up, but like, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily like indicting of any sort of, or like, it's not coming out to be indicting about any sort of particular structure or any sort of particular, you know, like thing. Um, I know that's, that's kind of grasping, but like, it is like, we're, we're with this guy, you know, we're, we're sitting watching him motion, you know, motionless for many, many minutes at a time We're we're with him throughout, you know, the, the vast majority of this. Um, and you know, the fact that we come away with it, you know, less than satisfied unless, you know, there's, there's no easy resolution to this. Um, and I, I think that plays, you know, in this, in this movie's favor, uh, at times it feels like it's playing a trick on us because we're sitting with things for so long. Um, and sitting through all that, not you know, getting a, a nice handy, you know, take home bag with like, Oh, this is what happened. The the person, you know, they got caught they're in jail now. Um, the fact that we don't get that, I, I think, I think this movie is better for it, but that's, those are the, to, to succinctly, uh, not succinctly answer your question, Jason, those are the things that I, I sort of grappled with over the course of this. And I do not know who was next no, in the I, queue, but I, please have at it. I, I believe do. Jason um, was, and then Aaron, and then I me, do. right? And, and, and this is not me. Uh, I'm not pivoting here. I'm just echoing more or less what Cody was saying, because like, it struck me that not only is it like, uh, uh, it, it's, it's not just that the point is sort of um there is not a whole lot of satisfaction to the story it's that like the conclusion as far as i knew and i only read synopses before watching the movie showed up 10 minutes late the conclusion is pretty foregone it feels anyway i was never under any uh pretense i guess that there was like real tension that they were going to find this person that they were going to find the culprit that there was like an actual plot with structure to be like followed and, and sort of a, a, a resolution or a meaningful denouement that, that i'm used to seeing anyway i guess this being only my second third foray into slow cinema um but like it's i think it's taking that that foregone conclusion and saying, okay, you know, kind of where it ends, or at least Jason, you can guess where this ends. Uh, you know that it's from 1990, you know that it's slow, you know that it's plotting. It's not really like action packed. Uh, and instead of saying, we're going to like pretend that there's plot to go to, to like a, a satisfactory conclusion or, you know, something succinct to say that instead we're just going to like, it's time dilation for this entire town, for the people in the movie and for the, obviously the viewer as somebody watching the events of, of the film. Um, like instead of a plot that drives forward, we have just like, we're digging into present facts and present grief of people in the town, not necessarily like following their lives. We get one really, really fucking freaky shot of just the town, the town's people outside of the house of somebody that they think is committed. That was maybe going to be my joke. That's, that's, it's, it's so frightening. And it is like, I think it is telling in that frame alone that like, we're not here to catch this guy. We're sort of just like digging into the reality of Harry, you had a great quote that you pulled from the director about this movie, the reality that like there is no true meaning in this pursuit. There is like it is uh, like I said earlier, a foregone conclusion. It is more or less you sort of know where it's going to end. Let's just spend the time there. Let's make the medium the message here and soak in that sort of like unsatisfactory droning purgatorial feeling uh anyway that's again i'm not pivoting from where cody was so wherever you wanted to go from there aaron it's mike's yours no i mean i'll just i'll just kind of follow up on that i i was i kind of want to talk about like the the nature of like slow cinema and how that like impacts like watching a scene which ties into what Cody i hope said. you would yeah but i think like well I'll, I'll wait because i'll i think like tying into what like you were saying specifically like i think there is something um, and that quote, I don't have it up. Maybe Harry has it and, and wants. To, I was going to read wanna, it, so yeah. I mean, I can read reading? it now if you, you want. Do sure, it right yeah. Now? Sure. It's uh, the director said, "I want to show to what extent the search for justice stands in ridiculous contrast to the eternity of nature." Meanwhile, it is precisely this search that I am so fascinated by. I'm 
as yeah. Cody Cody is doing chef chef hands like that's one of the better articulations I've ever heard a director uh like sum up his movie with. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I think that there is like a, a nature to like the the focus of this film. Like again, like being like like I don't know. I I, I was not aware of whether the killer was like going to be caught right at the end of this film. Right. I, like, but, but it, like, if I had to guess, I, I probably could have figured it out. Right. Um, but I think that there is like a specific aim of this film uh, that is like, you know, again, not focused on like that question, but more focused on like everything kind of like circling around it uh, that I think kind of ties into, you know, the, the black and white cinematography, like the slower nature uh, of the film. And even like the, the way in which this film is like really kind of solely composed of like really three or four different building blocks that it plays with. Like if you just like list the things that happen in this film, it would be like six sentences, right? Like there's, there's not like a lot <laughs> man here. walks, man stops, man screams, man dies. Yes. But it's like, I think like all of that adds up to a film that like feels like mythological in a way, right? Like this, this film is like concerned with like the nature of violence and how that impacts the community and the nature of like how people search for justice uh, uh, accurately and inaccurately. Um, and like the nature of like, uh, uh, you know, um, murder and like uh, predators and specifically like, uh, I think like, you know, gendered violence and then like the murder of like young girls specifically mm-hmm. by like, obviously like, you know, big, tall kind of foreboding uh, men wearing, you know, trench coats and whatnot. Um, I think that there is like, you know, that simplicity helps like those themes kind of stand out in a way that, that ties it to something like historical, like prehistorical in a way that I find kind of fascinating, I think. Yeah, I think um, this is a big thing to say, right? Almost so big that it's that it's a nothing burger, but it's like very deeply a movie about human nature. Uh, I think it's it's a movie concerned with the experience of being human, what it feels like to be a, a person. I think, um, and I think it uses the auspices and the techniques of slow cinema to do that. Um, to uh to repeat a terrible joke that I made to Kelly, so I apologize, but it was like this is a movie about meta epistemological skepticism, or is it right? <laughs> um, I also have like another quote. Sorry, while I'm on I my made bullshit, that same joke. Did I'm you sorry, really? <laughs> it sounds like you stole my joke. No, of course not. Oh, <laughs> you stole uh, my fucking joke. <laughs> um, but um, I had a. It's a David Berman quote from uh, like like the 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 death the song. It's um, why is there something instead of nothing, and how is the asking built into the hunting? That this movie kept reminding me of that quote. Um, and I, I think that like what's so fascinating to me about this movie at, at sort of the top level is that it is so formally masterful the way that it gets you to feel the way that the people in this movie must feel, and it also feels like the opposite. Right. It, it feels like the, the people in this movie feel the way that you're feeling watching this movie um, like that. Jason, you you said the medium is the message like that's so true. Right. Like every single shot in this movie feels like it's happening to all of these characters from the very start. Before we even see any characters, we see just this um helicopter shot right of the the forest. And it's like, you know, like Cody said, we talked about it after the movie and it was like just the. Or, or what the director himself called the uh, the eternity of nature, just the impossibility of finding something in all of that. And we are never like not reminded of 
the impossibility of that. It's like time and space in this movie are the enemies of humanity itself, right? It's like these, these are people who are struggling against the fact that they exist in time and space when existing in time and space feels so hard. It feels like it's eradicating meaning, right? Like it feels like, you know, you, you sit in a scene long enough that why you're in that scene, what's happening in the context of that scene, it begins to erode. It, it begins to come away, right? Like there's this incredible shot really early on when the, um, the police inspector is getting out of the car to go see the child who has been killed. And they say, how was she killed with a razor blade? He opens the door and then we stay inside the car and look out the window at just the mud uh, during this downpour, uh, like, like rushing down this hill for like upwards of 30 seconds. And it's like, it's so despairing that idea because it's like, first of all, you know, the evidence is being washed away, but also like we linger there so long that the scene starts to become about something else. And that was what was so fascinating to me about this movie is that constantly it felt like it felt like, you know, the, the original novel was about the sort of, um, frustration and, and skepticism with the detective genre that there are things that can be solved. It, it felt like the director was extending that idea outward to sort of epistemology. Uh, excuse me, epistemological reality itself, where it's like the experience of experiencing feels so different from what you're supposed to take away from whatever you're experiencing that there is no, never the twain shall meet, right? It's like, there's this idea that like, oh, like the experience of being human and being affected is so impossible to figure out because it's so much bigger than what we are able to conclude from these experiences. And what does that mean when, for instance, as happens in this movie, there is clearly something wrong, right? And there is clearly something coming for us. I mean, the two girls who are hunted in this movie are hunted uh, near a cross, which is a symbol of religion, obviously, and also near an eagle with a sword clasped in its talons, which is a symbol of Hungarian nationalism, basically. And so it's like, here we have this like setup where the future is being stolen from these people, like these innocents, these children are being uh, eradicated. They're being erased by this this vanishing man. And nobody knows why and nobody can figure out why because it seems not only it just seems impossible to figure out. Right. And and likewise, that impossibility of um, conclusion extends outwards to even like these people's own motivations, their own placement in time and in history. And, and we get to this place where like this you feel you really feel as um rudderless as they are you know what i mean and and as sort of fundamentally lost in the fog of this movie yes yeah the literal fog no i i really like that and um nothing new to say on that but just i mean further reaffirming the yeah the meaning of of these scenes change as like we continue to sit idly or as the camera is maybe moving slowly but still like moving going along a a a certain pace and i i definitely felt that weaponized in in pretty crucial moments actually the one of the shots that got brought up you know after the child's body is found we see the very ghoulish imagery of like the entire townspeople outside just like rows and rows of people it seems like go like <laughs> like more people than you would expect for a, a community that seems to be pretty small and we don't see really any of those people the rest of the movie but you know we we sit there um and eventually the camera starts to move in and based on what little data we've been given in the movie up to this point you know only a couple scenes have happened really only a couple cuts um you know we're, we're away from the hill we found the body um i think the police chief at that point is like goes 
like peeks around a quarter and like overhears um, the child's parents in the house, which speaking of which uh, as one of, as the mother of the father camera, which like starts like shriek, uh, sob laughing. Um, somebody in the theater, like to the left uh, jumped uh, in their seat. It's like a it's nice a, little unintentional. It might've been me because that was a jump it's scare. Very, it's very scary. It's, it's yeah. like open yeah. mouth laugh screaming. It sounds like a demon. It's so fucking. Ugh. Right. Yeah, it's certainly a demon. Um, and you know, we, we, we linger on that demon. We linger on that scene for, for a little, and we're accumulating enough data to know that as the camera starts to like move through this, this, um, crowd of people, like it is ghoulish. It is unsettling, but because the camera is moving and because, you know, this, these, these scenes and these shots kind of run to their natural end and then some, we know that we will eventually like move past these people and look at something else eventually. That's, we're not always blessed with that in, in, in some scenes, um, specifically ones with, um, like the mustachioed man, um, another, not really technically a jump scare, but all of a sudden we cut to that dude's face and it's looking, you know, sinister or, or uneasy or whatever. Um, the scene with, um, that woman might've been his wife, uh, somewhere. I think it's about. implied to be his wife at least. Yeah. Yeah, and we watch everything in that scene unfold um, extremely uncomfortably. To you know, we don't. They, it's I don't know. Not not going to get into the details of it unless we want to to throw like a content warning on this. But we they interact. Um, she seems very uncomfortable. They're like kind of like fight arguing, um, and then the argument ceases, and like we sit with them for a little bit. Um, we don't cut in the middle of it. We sit with it in its entirety. It's fucking horrible. <laughs> uh, and then perhaps perhaps even worse uh, than that is uh, the couple of scenes that follow where um that same guy is uh and uh, i guess other men in power in this movie um are just feeding children chocolate stroking their faces you better believe we we don't cut in the middle uh of a mid face stroke a, you know, a, a face off like face waterfall um as as we brought up yesterday um it's like we see all of that we sit with it the the kind of um, mechanisms that this movie is employing to like show us certain things, you know, like we learn a lot, we sit with a lot and not all of that is particularly like nice. We are, I mean, to Harry's point, like we are as an audience, we are stuck in the same way that these people are stuck, that this community is stuck, that the situation is stuck. And it's like, it's never, never going to improve. We're not going to catch the guy who did it. We're just, we're sitting here stuck uh, amongst all of this. So yeah, I don't know. I really good important point to, to bring up amidst all this yeah and maybe maybe a good on-ramp for my next thought which is like what do you make of the main guy the inspector being he is i don't want to say completely out of the way plot wise but he's not there he's for like most a weird of the ghost he's kind of like <laughs> he's kind of like a ghost like but but here's the thing he's not there for like the notification of the parents that cody was talking about he's literally like peeking in on it from outside and then once he's around the corner again so he's completely invisible he peeks again just to make sure nobody saw him and watch somebody else like he's kind of haunting the background of most of the movie uh and yet like and yet he's very incredibly present he's usually between us the viewer and whatever like is the subject of the of the frame um like there's even a scene where he goes to see a local professor i guess it doesn't really matter somebody who might be able to help him figure out who committed this crime it's the guy who ends up telling them that you know the man probably drives an older car kind of thing this you know wild assumptions uh and like the beginning of that scene is just on sort of the i forget if it's a drawing or if it's a police report or whatever that the professor is holding and then the sl camera slowly classic slow cinema uh slowly like rotates and revolves to start showing us more of the room and then lands right behind the main inspector's head like just so that his head occupies like 30 percent of the frame obscuring everything that is the subject of the shot and it just made me think like 
what what is the purpose of putting him so present in the like visual movie in the the like what what is actually going on on screen and then yet in the plot he's i'm not going to say completely ineffectual he does lead to the arrest of one guy he like gets clues he talks to people whatever he does some of that like traditional detective work but he's not super like present plot wise uh and i'm just wondering like does anybody have thoughts about the like friction there it's like why you, they would put is it just driving home that like sort of hopelessness um like like cody was saying at the end there uh or is it like that he's like sort of our lens i, I guess i was trying to square that uh, as i was watching the movie aaron I mean, you can I'll, go ahead I'll, I'll, yeah i'll cut in real quick and say that i, I think that's like kind of ties in a little bit to the the nature of the original novella which was in a lot of ways like a criticism of uh detective fiction i think it kind of works as like a uh like out of time like pre uh criticism of like true crime stuff which like at, at the time had not like like sprung up i mean did not like literally did not exist but but you know you could see like the maybe the formation of it uh partly that was originally Vella was originally written because the uh, I believe the screenplay that the author had written for a film uh, previously like wrapped up too cleanly, like had an ending that was like very kind of spick and spam. Right. And so he wrote this novella that was this like, I don't know, like pretty, I think, uh, uh, kind of forward thinking, um, you know, criticism of uh, detective fiction and the way that like, you know, a lot of like mystery uh, novels and whatnot kind of neatly wrap up. Um, and I think that like that ties into uh, the nature of this film to like be kind of unsatisfying in a way that you maybe would not predict just from like reading the events on paper. Like I kind of talked about this during my like summary, but like doing like research into this film and like typing up like a summary, you read like a ton of like synopsis of the synopses of this film that are like, you know, retiring homicide detective who is becomes obsessed with this one case uh, and decides to keep tracking it down even after he's retired, goes to like great lengths in order to like, uh, you know, find this killer. And, and, you know, it's like all this stuff. And like, that is like technically true, but it is like so different than how something like that would come off in like any other yeah. film that is like not nearly as like well, slow and like drawn out. Because right. specifically of what they choose to spend time on, right? Like yes. all of the actual material, like, revelations of the case are relegated to off screen so that we yes. can spend time watching this dude drive for four minutes. Yes. Right. Or, or something or like that. Like inferences that you get from, from like very long scenes. Right. Like yeah. I think that like my man buys you know, a gas station so that he can trap the killer and we don't see like any of that shit. It's yeah. like a minute. Right. Yes. Um, and like, I think this, this film like even goes farther in that direction. Like the, the ending of the original novella is that like the guy buys the gas station and there's a family with a young kid and he's going to trap the killer because the killer always drives on that road and he can like, he can predict it. And then sure enough, uh, the young girl like says, Hey, this guy, you know, offered me some candy. Uh, and he's like, okay, the next day we're going to catch him. And sure enough, the guy doesn't come the next day and he's like disgraced. And years later, he learns that like the killer like crashed his car and then like died on the way to, you know, uh, abduct this little girl. Right. Um, and like this film even goes farther than that. And like there is a crashed car, but also like the implication is like this killer is just like out there in the world. Right. Which yeah, is like a larger woods. metaphor for the nature of violence and and whatnot that kind of ties into like the mythological stuff we talked about. Um, but like. You know, this 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 film is like purposefully unsatisfying in that way. I think to say that like 
the nature of like justice and like revenge, I guess, um, is like rarely satisfying and rarely even like effectual in, in any sort of manner, I think is, is kind of ultimately what it's saying. Yeah, I really like that reading. Also, uh, this is a, a digression, but it, it is worth noting also that this is a Hungarian film. Hungary became independent, I believe, in 1989, not really through any like revolution of its own, but mostly because the USSR collapsed. Um, and so like revisiting this, these people in this place, uh, it's really fascinating, uh, to read from that perspective. These people who are sort of very skeptical about the future and about their place in it and their agency over it. Um, but I wanted to say that really goes with what I was going to say about the um, points that you brought up, Jason, which is that I think that this movie takes its sort of epistemological skepticism even further the way Aaron did to the point where, um, I think it, it tries to, it, it purposefully sets up and then deconstructs um, even our understanding of every character and our understanding of their motivations. Um, I think that like full on, this movie wants you to think at different times that the uh, police captain is the killer, that the inspector is the killer, uh, that the, the yeah, killer was. I'm glad you brought that um, up. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, and I think that like the reason it does that is because I think like beyond even the actual particulars of this case, this movie wants us to doubt the motivations undergridding what's happening. Like, why is this guy seeking this girl? Why is he obsessed with this case? Why, like, what does it mean that this is happening in the first place? I think I, in my, like in my reading of it, it by, especially my second time watching it, um, I was like, is the inspector real? <laughs> like, is he, is he and the police captain, the mustachioed police captain, are they kind of the same guy in some like weird ways? Right. Because like it, there are all of those scenes where they're together, but the inspector's kind of on the outside looking in the way that we are. Right. Or there's the fact that like the, they seem to be uh, running the same case at the same time in parallel. Eventually they confront each other when they're both uh, like staked out watching the girl right and there's all of this doubt planted right like i think we, we talked about this before but like there's the unbelievably unnerving scene where the mustachioed police captain um strokes the girl's face asks her first where she got the chocolates that she's eating and then says make sure you don't tell anybody because you got them from the good wizard of the forest right that is uh that transition straight to him watching the girl um uh at the same time in the same place as the inspector, the inspector sort of arrests him as if like the inspector thinks that he is the killer now, but then the girl comes over and the inspector starts stroking her face almost exactly the same way and keeps asking her questions about, um, like who gave her the chocolate and everything as if he doesn't know until eventually he starts abusing her. Right. Just the, the, Again, in a way that parallels the mustachioed police captain sort of abusing his wife, he starts shaking the girl and calling her stupid and saying, I just don't want something to happen to you. So I, I think that this movie sort of like it through its sort of um, skepticism of the ability to know things. It's also illustrating the effect that that uh unknowingness that that inability to learn anything does to somebody right i think that this is largely a movie about the psychological impact of being a human and being sort of hardwired to look for answers well all the while knowing that those answers will never manifest and maybe don't exist it's it's like the that impossible contradiction of of humanity right and i, I think that like 
one of the fascinating things that this movie does, my favorite thing that this movie does, is it extends that outward to the viewer, right? Where like, I think that there are elements of this movie that are supposed to drive you insane, right? Like the fact that like, is the inspector the killer? Is the police captain the killer? Uh, did the killer ever really exist? All of that. Um, I, like, I, I think that that's an extension even further outward of the skepticism that Aaron has um, alluded to, to like the point of like ultimate sort of idealist skepticism where it's like, is anything we're watching can we like take it seriously or like, what does it all mean? Like, why do we understand the, the motivations undergirding these people? Do we even know where they are and what they're doing? Um, I think, I think that the movie gets us to that place. At least it did for me. I, I think, uh, I, I think I like, I don't know if I necessarily like disagree with your point so much as I, I think it has like, those elements have like, I think a, a different effect on me or maybe, maybe kind of, maybe also had this effect, but like, I think that the, Specifically, the scenes were like the, you know, the we've been like arguing in the the chat here about the police chief slash inspector slash captain. I don't know what the. Well, the the inspector's retired. The main guy is a retired police inspector. So I've been. Yeah, I've been uh, differentiating him. The mustachioed guy is the dude who is still an active policeman. The scenes of the interrogation of the child, I think, are like you know, very obviously meant to be like incredibly uncomfortable and yes. disturbing. Right. I, I don't think that we are supposed to think that like, um, you know, I, either of those characters are like the murderer, I would like agree the with serial that. killer. Yes. But I do think like the, the general effect is that I think that like the viewer does tie that kind of action and that, that way violence. of like, dealing with the child, like, yes, to, to what, is at very least like imagined from the the killer right and i think what it does is it is it um makes that kind of behavior something more universal specifically from kind of like you know older men uh you know in this you know hungarian detectives area. And right? I think people who are seeking general, answers the way that these men are i think maybe just men <laughs> maybe but uh right but maybe also detectives well but and, and all, all and men whatnot. are detectives in this movie sort True. of Strospice. <laughs> yes, there's like th- three or uh, 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 what is it? Hacker? No, uh, husker. Hawkers. No, Hawkers. Yes, you're you're a hawker or you're a, uh, a policeman. But I, I think that like it makes that behavior more universal to the point where like we are supposed to. I don't think believe that any of those characters are like the killer, but we are supposed to see the killer kind of reflected in Everywhere. each of those characters. And I think that is like also interestingly tied into a lot of the discussions around the hawker and around who they kind of think it might be after the the hawker uh, kills himself. And that like, you know, the, the hawker is a person who is like selling these wares, right? He's selling like soap and knives and razors and whatnot to uh, people like, you know, in the town, but also people like traveling through. Um, there's like a, a sentence that they use after he dies where they say like, look, it's this guy with this like old antique car. Um, you know, he's probably like a salesman or he's someone from out of town, right? Like it's not, this is not like a local problem. This is not an issue that like we have. This is like an outside force, like coming in and like imposing itself on our like, you know, quiet little village or whatnot. Right. And I think that like, all of the the characters are like so uh, 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 quick to 
look for someone to blame to like assign the blame to instead of any sort of like introspection or like understanding of what this might mean from like a more Trump represents level. an aberration from the conservatism <laughs> yes. of the United States of America. <laughs> sure. Yes. Um, and I, it is like, I, I think it's like quite fascinating. And I think it, it also is like very easy to tie into, you know, the nature of like other similar Hungarian films that are all by Belatar. Cause I'm, I'm, uh, certainly not as uh, 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 well watched as as I should be, um, but I think that like you know there is a nature uh, uh, of those films, specifically like Saint and Tango, but also Damnation, to like kind of criticize uh, uh, you know something larger through like very small moments like that that I, I find like really fascinating, and I think that like the nature of this being such a, such a slow film like just kind of adds to that for me. It it like it is obviously a movie that is very very well aware of, of its audience. Um, as is, I think like broadly slow cinema is like, the point is it, you, they're aware that it's a human experience that like the pace of the movie is going to be different from most cinema. And that kind of becomes the point, obviously. Um, but there is, I, I, I have a hard time. I was mentioning this before we started recording and actually last night, right after we saw it, I have a hard time like squaring something that I noticed in one of the final scenes of the movie against what I'm not like, if so, it's, it's the most overt, uh, instance of like sort of this call out of voyeurism and like an implication of the audience and invitation throughout the movie. And this is a movie where like every third line is somebody else asking somebody like, what are you going to do about it? And are you waiting for something to happen and do something already? Like really putting a fine point on it for the audience. But, uh, there's this point at near the end where, uh, right after the fir- the mustachioed guy has been taken away from uh, the field for watching the child, when our main inspector character, Felix uh, Yellow uh, F- or whatever his name is, he runs up uh, and sort of in a very similar manner as the um, as the mustachioed guy was stroking her face and feeding her chocolate and shit. He uh, sort of grabs her and and insists that she tell him where he where she got the chocolate and she's shaking her around, sort of abusing her. And during that scene, I, w- I want to play a sound effect because I cut it from the actual file. That's right. I was able to get around, um, at least for now, Adobe's uh, pirate killer folk. Um, and I ha- was able to pull the sound effect from that scene. I want you to tell me if this sounds like what I think it sounds like. So that's the main detective, excuse me, main inspector guy. He says something. I forget what the line is, but he's sort of like grabbing the child and imploring her. And in the background, I could not place diegetically any other like reason for this sound to be there other than it sounds like a 35 millimeter film reel. It sounds like a film playing. It sounds like they're calling attention to the fact that I'm watching a movie and I don't know if I'm going, if I was going insane, if there's any other reason that sound effect would, would exist, but it sent my mind ablaze with the idea that perhaps like it's trying in a most in the most explicit way possible to say there's a certain degree of voyeurism excuse me voyeurism that we're uh, calling out here like you as an audience are sitting watching waiting for something gruesome something revealing something whatever maybe not as plain as that this movie seems a little bit more high concept than that but i don't know like did anybody else notice that was that a thing that you wanted to like am i going insane is that is is is, am i hearing what anybody else was hearing in that uh i i didn't hear that for the record jason i like that reading on it um i was gonna clarify um i agree with what aaron was saying and that i don't like literally think that um we're meant to believe that any of those other guys are the killers but i like like aaron said i think that like it it this movie takes the sort of like 
uh, inability to know anything about yourself to the same place that something like Cure or something like the Silence of the Lambs does, where it's like, hey, like the fact that you don't know where this is coming from uh, has scary implications because there is one hard fact in this movie, right? And it's that the child died. And then we sort of extrapolate everything else. But it's like, that is that is non-negotiable. Like, something is wrong here. Something went wrong. Something innocent was destroyed. Now we don't know why or how it happened or who did it. All we know is that it seems like anybody could have done it, right? Because there's something out there. There's some force animating men that is getting them to do this thing and we see it manifest we see it reflected everywhere we see it in the police we see it in the family we see it in the mob of the people outside right like to me when we're when we're looking at the trees right what it's saying is that like you don't know that that's not in you you don't know that that's not something that was imprinted upon you, something that exists in our culture, exists in our history. In fact, there is some reason to believe that that it is, right? Because we keep seeing it everywhere and we can never get our hands on, on it. We can never call it out, which means we can never separate it from ourselves. Like Aaron said, like these people are so fast to want to find an outside force that was doing this so that they can say they're okay but even after we find the car with the chocolates in it the culprit himself has vanished he's still out there right which means he's still among us or maybe even among you well right the the final detail of like the the camera like panning up and you know there's a man with a big long you really think it's gonna be the the giant and then it's a cop right and it's like oh shit but again, it's like that the, the characteristics of the giant are being, you know, kind of universalized to every other character. Yes. yes. It's, I, ooh, I like it's really shot. well done. That shot um, might come up by me. Uh, yeah, I think that's one of my favorite shots in the movie as well. But Jason, to, to tie it back to what you were saying, um, I, I think that like that's very much sort of a, uh, if you'll forgive my weebiness, my, a sort of like end of Evangelion moment where it's like we, we have to like make it as like explicit as possible that like oh we are including the viewer in this like finger pointing i in in end of evangelion uh ano hideki did a thing where he literally took pictures of the crowds watching the movie and inserted them into the movie um it's just sort of a, like a very Cody, clear that kind of counts as a video game so you can turn on i know you've seen Cody's it, but seen like, it. it rounds it. up it rounds up to a video game i'll you give, feel free I'll to give turn it your a, camera off you, you know what I'll, I'll give it an, an honorary uh toggle camera off i'm gonna remain talking on mic through this whole process just to kind of distinguish it from other situations sure. again this means nothing to the listener but but yeah i think that's a fair call and out so jason i think in particular that that um parallels what you called out earlier which is that the inspector functions as such a clear audience stand-in to the point where like i don't like in almost every scene the inspector literally looks through framing devices at something he has like a picture he holds up uh when he's finding the the next site that he thinks that the child murderer is going to visit he is watching the girl and her um mother at the gas station through the door like you had said earlier he watches the scene where they tell the victim's family uh that she's dead through the window so like there's constantly this frame right there's constantly this person on the outside looking in i think at all times we're supposed to understand that uh, we are being implicated in this, that that we are the viewer and that this impulse, this sort of universal impulse that um, could lead to the destruction of a child, right, to the destruction of a future uh, is in all of us 
um, as well. And I even think that like that extends to the way that this movie is shot and timed. Like, I think that the same way that the characters themselves are supposed to be worn away by the, the sort of, um, excruciating time that this movie takes, like the, the, excruciating mundanity of the case. I think that that's also why the shots take so long for us. I think it's supposed to show us that like, Oh, like this is what it feels like to be alive and it hurts so bad (laughs) and it's making us crazy. Uh, And it might even be doing things to us that we can't control or understand. And that might be uh, destroying us or worse destroying uh, the things that we love. And it gets a little bit more, I guess pointed when you consider that in like the grand scope of slow cinema, it's less about like realistically portraying or getting people to recognize life is passing by and more an exaggeration of that to like underscore to directly say like, this isn't like an artificial extending of time. If this thing that we're happening on screen were actually happening, it would not take this long. Obviously it is, it is in its way, like the direct stylization of that literal point, I guess. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about our experiences in general watching this movie because I felt like watching this at the trial on was pointed. Uh, it was, I think, preferable to watching it just at home. Um, maybe Aaron, I, I, guess, I think, guess you watched it this Sunday morning. Uh, is it a bit of a yes. brunchy, so brunchy great movie? Great morning. Great. I think, did we watch Damnation? What was the, I'm trying to we remember. Watched Damnation. We, we, felt, we fellas watched yeah. Damnation <laughs> uh, watched over Discord. Night. Yes. That was, it was a funny one. Yes, yeah. I, I saw it this morning. Okay. Um, not a good... Here's the thing. I like. I, I really love this movie. Uh, I just think... I, I would say for slow cinema in general, uh, I just need to see it in a theater. Like, it really mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it really detracts from my experience to watch this at home. Like, what am I going to do? Agreed. You know, like a, yeah. But I... And I would say, like, generally, I don't know if there's a kind of movie I like watching more in a cinema than something that is kind of slow and thoughtful like this. Like this is my ideal like movie watch other than like maybe like a really high quality blockbuster, like on like the release day or whatever. I don't know if there's like a kind of movie I like watching more in a theater than just like a movie like this cup of coffee, just, just vibing. Like that's, Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. it for me. But it's, it's one of the rare movies where like, it feels like that's, it's, you know, in the, in the same way that you could say about like a piece of art you would see in the museum where it's like the experience of like where you are and the way you're experiencing it are as important to the experience as the thing itself. Right. Like, like watching this in the movie theater is a different artistic experience than watching it at home in a way that is not true of all movies, I think, but is particularly true here because like the fact that you're sitting in a dark room with a bunch of people feeling this time pass, all of a sudden becoming very aware of yourself in this space and time feeling excruciated by the fact that it's taking so long, right? It's like, uh, what did the guy who did uh, the um, the time where it, it just it was a 24 hour uh, museum installation that was just clocks in movies showing time passing? Um, he did another. <laughs> no, that's good. Yeah. And oh, it's an it's an amazing experience. It, it It's skin crawling. If you sit in there like I think I watched for like half an hour once and it felt like I had been watching something for like seven days. Um, he did another really good uh, art project that was called 24 hour psycho where he takes the shower sequence. Um, I think this is the same guy. He takes the shower sequence from psycho uh, where she gets stabbed and he extends it so that it takes 24 hours to show. And so like, you'll be watching like the third fucking like shower uh, 
holder like fall from the shower for like upwards of two hours and it's it's like it, it it's doing something similar right and that's how i feel about a lot of slow cinema it's like the point is that you're watching it right now in this place with these people feeling it support your local cinemas folks yeah yeah i mean like this this is like a you know an, a big internet debate with like streaming obviously becoming kind of the dominant mode of uh you know i don't media conveyance or whatever but like I, you know, I think specifically for like a slow movie like this, like I think you just need to be held captive, uh, which pun not intended for the nature of this film, of course. But like you just need to literally not be able to look at your phone or look around the room like you just need a dark cinema and you need to watch the camera slowly pan over shit. You know what I mean? Like that you. I think that's just like necessary for the experience. Mm-hmm. You need to not drink a THC seltzer uh, while you're watching this. That I, yeah, would be, you, that would be good maybe, too. Yeah, maybe ill-advised. Uh, you do need to pop some caffeine. Uh, coffee in the theater. We should normalize that more. I feel like uh, everybody looks at me like I'm insane when I do that. But it's I did want to bring concession. It, Other, yeah. Thank you, Aaron. Never felt closer to you than I do now. Um, the point, my point in bringing that up was uh, specifically because. The experience of seeing it at the Trilon last night was, I think I'm going to remember that as much as like actually the events of the movie and how it played out because, and Cody helped me remember, I know that I started noticing noises from outside, which are rare at the Trilon. It's a pretty well soundproofed area and there's like often sounds coming out of the theater. Um, Impossible almost to hear most sounds, but there was a scene in which I think it was, I forget exactly what's happening, but there's like a long droning sound that kind of sounds like a horn, but like a train horn. And then just separately a train horn a few times that I was like, oh, there's a railroad right next to the trial on like over there on Minnehaha or on Hiawatha mm-hmm. pretty close. Uh, and then I was like, okay, so we're, I'm going to get some sounds here and there. I'm, I'm prepped mm-hmm. for that happening. And just over the course of the movie, it happened a few more times to me. Did you notice any of that? The the one that I can remember, and I think it was as the um the non mustachioed police guy, uh, like driving down a hill to get to a house at the bottom to talk to the mustachioed guy. I think I have that plotted out. And like around that point when he's driving down the hill, we heard multiple uh, sirens outside, um, police or, or otherwise. I can't mm-hmm. remember the cadence, and so I can't can't speak to to the exact you know purpose of the vehicle but like multiple sirens going at once which was kind of a, a wild experience uh in the moment but otherwise yeah like a, a couple just like quiet very quiet memory voices it was like people being respectful out in the lobby you know volunteers or, or people just hanging out in the lobby or otherwise but like you can hear those trickle through and that's when you know it's just like shit this is like mm-hmm. a, the, the, this is a really fucking quiet place yeah um, the, the uh, se- a sequel to that movie that they did the make. relatively one yeah it, it like or just the the fucking rustling like i could feel bodies mm-hmm. moving around in that in that movie theater right it was like oh my god yeah. like i i can feel breath happening in this room <laughs> and just that it left the space in sound design and in like visual attention because I, i'll be the first to admit quiet movies even if they if they've got something interesting going on if something's happening it doesn't need to be loud and raucous for me to not notice background noise but this was like heard motorcycles revving, heard people talking in the lobby. There was one instance, quick side note, where uh, I'm not sure who was talking in the lobby. It sounded like an adult male talking maybe with somebody else on the phone. And somebody, it happened for maybe 30 seconds before somebody in in the audience got up, walked out the door, maybe said or asked them to stop and then walked back in and the sounds didn't happen again. My mind went to like, I can't think of another person with that voice who was out in the lobby except John Moret. Love John to death. Oh, and man. if he and if he was talking and, some, and somebody felt comfortable 
asking John Moret to stop talking. No, I'm saying like you could not get me to do that in a million years. I would never ever have the the, the bravery, wherewithal, or stupidity to do that. You could probably tell me. Also, not everybody knows who John Moret is, dog. Like that was just some guy talking outside. That's what I'm saying. Blissful ignorance. The man did not know, and therefore he did not fear. Look, we've all. I've been with all of you as we've gotten yelled at for talking too loudly outside of a theater. Do not throw mm-hmm. stones, sir, lest ye be judged. This right? is like we that. I feel like, I feel like I'm being misunderstood. We're waiting right to now. go into what the fuck was that movie? We're, maybe Ghost in the Shell or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I do, do remember, that. remember that. That reminds yes. me of like uh, this is a junk drawer thought, but like my cousin, former uh, podcaster John Mackin, once was watching an episode or watching. Um, I think it was his girl Friday or maybe it was some, some like it hot in a movie theater. And there was this dude doing a really, really annoying laugh constantly behind him. And he, he turned around to tell the dude to shut up. And it was Quentin Tarantino. (laughs) 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 So so he he just like took took a look at him Uh and then just like turned back around and didn't say anything for the rest (laughs) of the movie. That's how I would feel about this. It would be like, like uh, I think after the movie, we started talking about like, what if you watch this movie with Bellatar and Bellatar would just be like weeping openly throughout the entire thing and be like <laughs> shut the fuck up Bellator. <laughs> um sort of a junk drawer thought but a second ago i'm i'm fact checking myself uh 24 hour psycho is by douglas gordon he's a scottish artist the clock which is the other art installation i refer to is by christian marclay um okay i think both of those are featured in a uh, don delillo novel that i read called point omega that's really good <laughs> that is sort of like using- psycho is how i refer to harry that's my All the time, baby. Twenty four seven. I one maybe junk drawer. Yeah, maybe I'll just put in the junk drawer sound effect. Uh, you know what? I'll just I'll just do the junk drawer sound. Come on, come on. I was going to say you could do that. Yeah, I'm sorry. My computer is running slower than ever because I had to upgrade the OS to get get by the uh, Adobe cops. Um, how how do y'all feel when you're sitting like next to like the same the ne- sorry the seat right next to somebody else, not any buffer seat. And that person chooses actively after a, you know, maybe un, uh, a disrespectful length of time, decides to stand mm-hmm. up and move to another seat, just one seat further away from Ooh. you. Because that happened to me last uh, night. Well, well, I, well, did you well, fart? I fart. I made no, okay, my context here, I made no sounds. Mm-hmm. I was not shifting. Yep. I was not doing anything that I, and you know, I'm like annoyingly hyper aware of that shit was not doing any of that. And this person said, oh, I, I'm sorry. Do you smell, do you smell bad? And <laughs> scooched one seat okay. away and said, one, one other, Excuse me, one other I need clarifying yeah, question. Cody, go first. Okay. Yeah. We might be on the same page. So the, the seat that they moved to, was it adjacent yeah. to a different person? Yes. No, this person was indeed alone. Okay. Uh, and I believe yeah. once they moved, they were then. Like there were buffer seats on either side, so originally they had Why two were seats you next to the right. To them in the first place, because, because I got there late, I chose the corner seat because I couldn't see anything because it was a dark scene and I didn't want to bumble around in the middle of the beginning of the movie. Sure. I ran right to the back corner seat where there was one open, but a person was sitting there. So if I had chosen oh, either say, side well, of that person, no, I would no, have been right no, next. They were, yeah. yeah, judgment. They were maybe slightly socially anxious. They just need wanted yeah. to be one of the buffer seats. It was like fifteen I, I mean, minutes. I wish I more often. I'm not, also, looking, I'm not no, looking to be angry. No, it was like fifteen listen, minutes. No, I'm mad at you. No, I'm mad at you, Jason. You sat down down next to this person. Yeah, you sat down next to them, and you have the gall to be mad that they stood up. I'll just, I'll just walk into a gun and pull the trigger. Theater. He's sitting watching a movie. What's the problem? I I know. I'm not. I'm saying that I'm mad that Jason thought he could be mad. 
that that like he's like, oh, this I'm person also was not disrespectful. Mad. I, how you feel about I didn't it. read it as Jason being mad. I no, think no, you're I, I I think that if the dude sat down next to you after you were seated and then sat there and then stood up and moved, that would be weird. I, yeah, I would be like, this, this, is, why, this is why I brought this up because I knew it Harry is, was going to somehow misinterpret exactly what I was saying to make it sound I, like I had done do, something okay, wrong. Okay, look, classic. I, I agree. With, you did do something wrong. Okay, now here's here's the okay. Uh, Look, here's the thing. My read on the situation is this person's maybe slightly uncomfortable sitting next to someone that they don't need to at a theater, and it is perfectly acceptable for them, of course, to stand up and move. However, that read doesn't make any sense because it is such a ballsy move to stand up and physically move away from. Like you're clearly being like, "Hey, fuck you, buddy." Oh, and and this person didn't. This person is the bravest or least brave person of all they, time. They didn't like, even do it like like uh, surreptitiously, like just gonna slink. This person stood up. Did not look me in the eye, but turned my direction, said, <laughs> I'm sorry, and then sat another seat away. <laughs> like I'm there sorry. was communication. Uh, and I, I said, and I just said, like pardon. Ass, dude. I, yeah, I, I, they probably, it, probably stink oh, with the doo doo. Oh, I forgot to tell like you, I was shitting in my seat and it was piling You're up underneath of me and it, was, le- in it was leaking into his. Yeah. Oh, Nothing man. wrong with that, by the way. You're I, just you're I, only a human. Harry takes Cody's back been wanting scripts. to say something for a year now, but can I real quick say I was dying laughing uh, at the I was I was talking to uh, my my wife Diana about this while we were driving home from the grocery store. the The idea of a guy who has to shit, but instead of saying "Hey, I have to take a shit," refers to it as "Hey, I got to shit my pants right now." <laughs> I was dying laughing in the car just imagining this guy like, "Hey, I really got to shit my pants right now." Oh. <laughs> I just, I just so bad right now. I need to shit my pants. <laughs> you, I, that you was the funniest thing in the world. Really, really weird into the world now. But like, he still needed. He still was just going to do a regular number two. But that was just his terminology. His chosen terminology. What kind of life had he led to that point that led him to think that yeah. was an okay, okay way to say that? Anyway, that was cracking me up in the car. Cody, what's up? Yeah, no, I, I raised my hand because, uh, fellas, I got to shit my pants. Uh, no, I, so in the interest of thinking, putting too much thought into this and then we can tie a bow on it or whatever. Um, Jason arrived at the theater a little bit later than, than Harry and myself. Uh, uh, so like Harry and, and Kelly and I, you know, we had our seats in the back. If the movie has, if the movie has started, you know, we're a couple minutes in, even if trailers are happening, I think, prioritizing getting a seat and sitting the fuck down so that you do not inconvenience other people, not necessarily finding the optimal like buffer situation because that the screening we were at last night had like a, it was like relatively, I don't want to say like all like close to like three quarters capacity or something like that. But there was, I mean, at least half full, um, certainly not a situation where you could like optimize buffer seats, uh, you know, but the buffer seat situation This was like, if you come in, the lights are already dim sit in, in a situation where there's not assigned seats, which the trial does not have pull, pull up a chair, sit down. And now it's, now it's go time. But in that situation, you know, to this other person's point, if you have an opportunity to move to a situation where you do have a buffer seat on other either side, of course, go for it. Like that's, that's the move. Like I, it's, it's not a vastly different experience in a theater. Like I can, I can get over it. You know, I'm, I'm maybe a little more conscious about like my elbows. I always go up to the trial with both my water bottle. And then I get at least one bottle of soda. So like the, the cup holder situation on either side of me, that's a big priority. Um, yeah, this person, I don't, I don't fault either person in this scenario, Jason or this other stranger who just wanted a little bit of, of, uh, you know, anxious elbow room. That's, that's where I'm coming from. To be, to be clear, I, sh- I feel I should defend my, my point now. Uh, the only thing I took umbrage with is that Jason brought this up as if it were something that was not normal. Uh, this person doing you a favor 
basically giving you an not extra every, for not seat. Not everybody would move, though. Not everybody would. No, move. this person right. deserves Doing a medal. A favor See, is not. That's not the right way. Absolutely, no. it is. Correct. Yeah. You, it, you are discounting the psychological cost to see someone purposefully move away from you. In a Cle- clearly, that because is, Jason's still thinking about it. <laughs> that Jason, in that moment, was portrayed as the giant in this film. He he is some sort of horrible predator. <laughs> Should have been sitting hoping. next to unsuspecting people in movie theaters, maybe doing some weird shit. You know what it, I mean? It, well, I, I was shitting my, my pants. pal Jason um, should be painted in that light. I, I shouldn't. Should. I should be painted fairly and handsomely as I appear in real life. Uh, I guess like to, to cap it, I was not offended by the idea of the person doing it. It was how long they took to do it. If in another world, this person had stood up almost as soon as I got there and given me an, another seat to give me space. Absolutely no Objection. second thought about you it. Said it was, you said it was dark. That was the reason why you didn't find I was seat. standing in a room with a bright wall. This person saw me and I didn't see them. Harry. I'm saying that it might have been tough. It might have been tough for them to move over at that time. They might have been waiting for the appropriate moment. Waiting 15 minutes with more popcorn in their belly and more anxiety on their head. No, this person. This person sat there for 15 minutes talking to themselves like Jeff. You can do this. (laughs) Yep. You know how bad you are at sitting. Working up the courage. You need to work it up the courage for 15 fucking minutes. You know, and then finally they 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 grasp their destiny with their own two hands and fucking move seats. That is a heroic. Okay. Yeah. No. I mean, he's great. I know. I'm I'm all about this guy. Yeah. Actually, he's in the Star Tribune this morning as a sexual predator. I'm back to fuck Jason (laughs) on this one. Thank you. See. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Cool. We're agreeing. You're fine. You're fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for going on this fun detour with me. Anybody else have junk drawer thoughts about? Yeah, about I, the movie I got a couple. Okay. Oh, so uh, Aaron, did you want to go? No, uh, he, uh, no I was going to make fun of time. the idea of somebody having more junk drawer thoughts. But go, go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I do. <laughs> I do it too. Uh, we uh, one um, we we didn't talk about the the music uh, on mic all that much. Um, one of my favorite, extremely effective uses of music that I've seen in a movie uh, in some time. Uh, somebody on Reddit says, says it's um oh god it's it's Hello Earth the Kate Bush track off the album mm-hmm. Hounds of Love um so that's cool I was not aware of that that's super cool I'm gonna be listening to that um uh, frequently uh, probably once we uh, get done recording here um but the other thing uh, less less seriously um I loved the and I think I said this outside the theater as well yesterday but the the big daddy esque um cleanup routine of like oh a suspect just jumped off the roof uh now there's a corpse here and they're bleeding out their head we're just gonna cover them in some paper material that seems to have a consistency similar to to newspaper kind of like how Adam Sandler does when he like covers up the barf I don't know I know that's not like intended to be funny but that's the first thing uh, I thought of and so that's that I felt it worthwhile to share on Mike so there you have it. Yeah, speaking of that scene, uh, wildest cut in the entire movie right before then, when uh, the inspector is alone in the office just sort of thinking to himself, another body moves in front of the camera, and then as soon as the body like overlaps mm. with the inspector so we can no longer see them, the camera cuts, and in the inspector's place is a different dude wearing something else, uh, who then is informed that the suspect has jumped, and then they run out of the room. It's fucking crazy. That, like, I rewound the movie, like, three times to watch that because I was like, wait, was that the inspector? And it's not. They replaced the inspector with a different dude mid shot. It's fucking wild. Anyway, um, that's really good. Um, let's see. What did I had some other thing junk drawer thought to say, but I, Oh, uh, Hounds of Love fucking 10 out of 10. That's a banger. That's one of that's the best pop albums of all time. Yeah. So uh, check it out. And did we bring up Parasphere yet? Somebody I, wrote about 
the Kate Bush song. Uh, uh, yeah, mentioned it in a piece. I okay, can, cool. I, I, I've dropped that in the show notes. I'm pulling up the title of it now. It's called Waiting for Something to Happen, Georgi Feher's Twilight by Luke Mosher for Perisphere. Check it out. Shout outs. Um, yeah, it's in the show notes and at perisphere.org. Uh, I wanted to mention as part of a junk row thought, um, there's a lot of smiling in this movie where there shouldn't be. I don't know if you noticed this. There like, sure is, weird, dude. Yeah, these, that's it's like, like a like whole quite, motif. It's not quite rictus grin, but like when the inspector is interview, interviewing, or excuse me, he approaches one of his own detectives or whatever who's uh, sort of surveying the scene. It's before that shot of the town where the camera just slides to show a bunch of stony faces. Uh, he like gives this weird half faced grin. Uh, kids are always smiling. Obviously the, the salesman who the hawker or whatever, who uh, jumps out the pr- police precinct window. Uh, he is like doing this really bizarre, really frightening, gr- like smile, the almost the entire interview. It happens many, many times throughout this movie. And I couldn't help but read it as like a motif of some kind, or maybe just like one of those sticks with you because it's like the intent of it was to just make it stick in your brain rather than having any like deeper meaning behind it, but terrifying uh, and worthy of a drunk drawer thought. If anything, I think um, I'll close up the drunk drawer. If anybody really good point. Doesn't. Yeah. Um, I kind of took that to be the similar thing to where it's just like, Hey, why the fuck is that person smiling? Like, I, I really think that was supposed to be kind of disquieting the way that you just described. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it sure was, uh, uh, you know, goal achieved fire, Georgi. Um, I will then chunk, chunk up, close up the junk drawer uh, for episode 253. And um, I'm trying to think about the order of operations here. I do want to get to a, a real quick mention of this segment I brought up last time. I thought it was fun last time. It led to a really fun argument about the best horror movie of, or excuse me, sci-fi horror movie of 1979. Uh, it's a segment that I like to call Other Loves We've Tried uh, for 1990, movies we've covered that came out in 1990. I don't think anybody actually heard me because you were all screaming about how many bits we have in the last episode, but it's called Other Loves We've Tried for I, 1990. I was yeah, it's good. Internally you, screaming about how many bits we have right now. But uh, uh, This doesn't need to be longer than the many. next four things I'm about to say. Episode 21, Miller's Crossing from 1990. Uh, I forget what number episode, but from from, uh, the t- in the time of Corona series, the beginning of the pandemic, uh, we had Total Recall with Logan Lafferty. We had The Juniper Tree, episode 75, I think on the eve of or just a couple days into the George Floyd riots in Minneapolis. So that was a fun thing with Harry living in the same neighborhood. And uh, anyway, episode 102, um, Days of Being Wild uh non con- uh confrontational non like we have all the same opinions about that movie in this uh so we don't need to like argue it's about best car we don't need to say anything it's yeah, a good movie yeah we will agree that it's that it's the best that we covered um so that was other loves we tried for 19 right, it's like the best that we covered from that series for sure i i you know as long as we can all agree that it's genuinely and sincerely like the one that was worth watching of all of them uh if any of them were yeah. like worth covering yeah i i i, nope. I think we're no, all we on can't. the same page we're on the same uh page, page i of think the cody that jason and aaron are just worse at movies than we are i think that's what i've concluded from this <laughs> these years of podcasting uh, together correct if, if if ever there was a shirt that should come to the try love shop uh just a crew neck um, like awkward red orange colored sweatshirt with white text that says I'm better at movies. Maybe just leave it there. Um, <laughs> That's right. It's, it's, a, for tar- the it's season. a target on your front at that point. Uh, that was other loves we've tried for 1990. I don't have a sound effect for it, but everybody seems to hate it. So maybe I'll just keep doing it without uh, posture or grandeur. No, I kind of like it. Uh, we, like have, it. we have two, more, two final segments, um, one of which is... Good grief. Give me a gif. Uh, I would like to know what you think should go out with the episode when it goes out on social media, Twitter, etc. Cody, you're in love with this movie. You're in love with how it looked. You're in love with how it moved. Um, what were the shots that you think should appear uh, on Twitter? 
yeah, I'm in love with this movie. We're getting married. Actually, spoilers. Uh, yeah, the the hopefully before the the calendar year ends. Fingers crossed. We can, we can swing that. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, kind of in the in the twilight of the year, we're looking to to get married. Um, uh, yeah, that fell flat. A um, couple shots that I loved, and and I think I'm pretty sure people here uh, th- these may crop up, but they're I, my two faves. Um, so I got to stick with them. The one uh, or the first one chrono- chronologically via the movie's runtime being um when the uh, non-mustachioed police guy um as i'm just gonna stick with for the remainder of this episode is um searching with a flashlight through a dark like classroom lands upon the picture of the giant that a, a child drew i think jason you brought that up um a- after the show last night we, we all talked about a lot of images from this movie it was great uh that shot is great um and that i, I think that is one image that in particular if you're not um, like if, if, again, if for whatever reason you're listening to this or seen something about Twilight and are interested in it and haven't watched it yet, that is one image that I think you could like map onto something like a more contemporary styling where there is that like exactly. child imagery or like drawing or like something to like halfway kind of visualize the terror. Um, the idea of like a kid drawing this, uh, this tall giant person in a hat and trench coat that ended up being a child murderer. Yeah, um, it so kind of tells just, the story like, right there. Strange. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's yeah, it encapsulates that super well. So that is why that is one of them, and then the other one being, um, it's already come up on this episode. But when, um, the uh, the inspector, non-mustachioed, uh, again finds the chocolate in the uh, car that is crashing, it's like a POV shot of him looking at the chocolate in his hand, and as we sit there for a little bit, eventually. Um, footsteps, uh, you hear the footsteps and you see someone, wa- a, a person walk into frame and you, we see the, the feet stop and we eventually pan up the body. We never see the face, but we see pretty much everything else. The car frame is, is, um, obscuring the, uh, the person's actual face. Um, eventually we do see them. It is a cop, but it is in the moment that sort of like ass clenching moment of like, is this the guy? Um, so I, I really like that shot. So I like those two probably most um but i also like a lot of images in this movie a whole heck of a lot so that's that wonderful i must say uh with fair warning i'm gonna be able to make these gifts the slow cinema is the worst for gift making it's that's like a 45 full second shot that harry excuse me cody just mentioned i loved you it could too. take like the middle 20 seconds I, maybe you know what i considered was like every time that the camera is not actively moving cut remove yeah, that's just, just pretend as if it doesn't exist. That's the better version. Maybe I'll make a shit post. I've got a shit post idea, but I'll hand off to Aaron first for his thoughts about the images that should go out with this movie. I mean, it's the, yeah, it's the it's specifically the shot of the policeman bending through the car. That's like a, that's a sick shot. If we could maybe get a Photoshop of the very end of that, not for a gift, but just for just a, a Photoshop of the policeman doing the thing where he's like handing the blunt. You know what I mean? As he's leaning forward, that would be a good, nice. <laughs> just hypothetically, you know, if we could get that, but it's not bad. the shot of the shot of him leaning through and coming into focus, I think is the one for me. Yeah. You will absolutely uh, see those. Yeah. Um, Cody brought up a lot of really good ones that I also had. Um, I had one at around seven minutes. That's the inspector walking away from the body um, out of the crowd of people at the cross toward the camera. That's a really good shot. Um, and then let's see. Oh, at around 77 minutes, uh, there's a really good over the shoulder shot where the inspector wearing a hat is looking at the girl in the field and she's looking back at him and they have like a really uh, tense moment there. 
Excellent. Those are, are the gifts that we'll be putting, uh, that we'll be trying to create. Um, mine overlap almost perfectly with Cody's. I wanted to add, it's gruesome, but again, darkly comic. The man who's jumped from the police uh, precinct window and has splatted. There's a little bit of blood trickled from his body. His, he's completely motionless and they just put like meat wrapping paper over him and it just sort of flutters in the wind very, very gently for, again, nobody's in the frame except him for like 20 full seconds. It's it's good. It's a good gift. And maybe as Harry, or excuse me, Cody, I keep saying that Cody loves to do perfectly loopable, perhaps. We'll see. Maybe I'll uh, up my game here at the end of the year. Um, thank you so much. That was Give Me a Gift. We have actually, actually one final segment. After this one that I've had. No, I'm kidding. Uh, we have one final segment that Harry needs to help me uh, introduce. Honestly, I would respect at this point if you just kept adding segments like <laughs> every, every single one, every episode. episode. Yeah. The I year love of it. the bits. Uh, you're the bits, TBH. Uh, yeah, this is the segment we like to call <gasps> Cody's, Cody's Noties. Wow. Thank you, fellas. That introduction was good. Uh, I'll admit, uh, guys, I was under the impression that we'd be watching a, a different Twilight this week. But I think the trivia I've compiled will still be functional enough. We'll, we'll power through. So without further ado, I present to you Twilove. Yeah. We did it. Yeah. We did it, folks. Uh, I will read off one question at a time, and you will be, provi- uh, be given the chance to provide your answers in spinner app-generated order, um, just a random means of us to um, you know, suss out who answers when and in what order uh, on our side. Don't worry about it, listeners. We've got it under control. Uh, points will be awarded based on correctness of the guess. As always, trivia mafia rules apply here. So use your noodles, not your Googles. With that, let's go ahead and jump in. Um, so, so first question again: uh, Twilight trivia. Uh, my question for y'all: How tall is Edward Cullen as he's characterized in the Twilight books? So let's get get the get the spinner app here. The first guess goes to Harry. Harry, how tall is that sparkly fucker? Stephanie Meyer definitely would have made him like six two, right? Just like just tall enough to be notably tall. I'm going to go with six two. All right, Harry is rolling with 6-2, and let's see who goes next. That next person is Jason. Jason, how tall is he? He is 6 foot 1. He is 6 foot 1, says Jason. Uh, Right, said Fred, and Aaron says what? Uh, I also think that canonically six foot two is the most attractive height for a man. Uh, I don't agree necessarily agree with that. I'm just saying that that is like, it, it's just true. So, uh, six, two. Yeah. All right. Six, two says Aaron, not a lot of spread covering this round. There's no uh, spread. Well, it, it's numbers. There's infinite yeah, number of them. It, There's no, yep, sp- no, you can't they're do that. Cano- they're they're not, canonically not like, no, no, no. They're covering spread is like, like the upper bounds of, you know, uh, the, the only one here who had a major uh, in math is, uh, is speaking here canonically. There are like four or five numbers. Um, this is the most combative do. episode of this podcast we've ever made. 253 episodes <laughs> oh, where we finally that. hate each other. Uh, I, I will submit any Golden Berries episode for yeah, consideration, right. Your Honor. Um, according to online sources, Edward Cullen is allegedly six foot two. God right? damn it. It's, it's the, the most Look, attractive height. Stephanie I don't Meyer, agree. It just... We, I think we understand what's going on there at six two. 
And, and we will leave it at that. Uh, 6-2, let your imaginations run wild. I guess you don't have to. They made a bunch of movies about that. Uh, some of which we might talk about here as we pivot to the second question. There are five of these total. Still very much anybody's game here. Uh, Carter Burwell is the credited composer for uh, the first Twilight film, as well as the two Breaking Dawn um, sequel entries. Uh, I'm going to give you three options. Of the following three films wherein Burwell also did the music, which one is most popular as gauged by letterboxed popularity metrics? So basically just like which one's getting watched and logged the most. Uh, your options are being John Malkovich, The Big Lebowski, or three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, um, a, a podcast favorite. Uh, <laughs> I, I said that sarcastically. Um, the first guess will go to Harry. So of those three films, which one is most boxed popular? I gotta say, I'll be stunned if it's not Big Lebowski. I'm gonna go with Big Lebowski. All right, Harry's going with Big Lebowski, locking it in. Um, we've got, who's up next? We've got Jason with the next guess here. Um, eerily similar order to the mm-hmm. last question, I, I, I believe, but hey, Dems to breaks. Jason, what do you think? I forget exactly how letterbox popularity metrics work, but I think it's less like how many people have seen it, how many people have seen it, and how re- reviewed it highly. So I think, given that Pursuit of Billboards was a big old critical success for some godforsaken reason, I'm going to say three billboards. Right. Uh, P billboards, says and Jason. At least Banshees of Inishira is pretty good. I like oh that yeah, movie. he redeemed he redeemed himself mad like with that one. I I love that movie. Yeah, uh, and will Aaron redeem himself? Not uh, not that he needs to redeem himself immediately for any particular reason. I uh, have the opportunity to cover the spread or not. Um, canonically, there are three choices in this question. Um, so, what are you going to go with? I am not going to cover the spread. I'm going three billboards. Just oh, best oh. picture nominee favorite for a time. Uh, for a time, recent film. Came out since Letterboxd was created. I got to go that one. Although, yeah. Yeah, yeah Roger Dodger. Um, all right, locked that in. The uh, correct guess, the most popular of those three, is in fact The Big Lebowski. Though the most <sighs> popular Burwell scored film is, of course, The Banshees of Inish Aaron. Um, great mm. film, TBH, huh. IMO. Um, well, perfect. So a look, quick look at the scoreboard. Harry uh, is in a commanding lead with two points. Aaron, uh, bring it, bring it up, uh, bringing up his heels, hot on his heels, hot on his, on his heels. We'll go with that with one point. Jason still has yet to get on the board. Got a couple questions left though. Uh, anything is possible. Um, said Kevin Garnett once, uh, question three, sticking with the first Twilight film, uh, and what slot does Twilight place on the list of all time Fandango advance ticket sales? Potentially dating ourselves with this question, not to give the hand away too much. Um, but uh, Fandango advance ticket sales, uh, obviously, and maybe, I don't know, honing in on it a little bit more. Obviously, it is notable enough to where it is a piece of trivia that I could look up. Um, so, in what place does that movie rank on the list of all time advance uh, Fandango ticket sales? Um, first guess, Harry. Um, so, um, yeah, yet again, Harry, what, what do you think about this one? You know, I, I think I'm just going to not metagame at all, and I'm just going to say number one. That's my mm-hmm. guess. All right. No metagaming, Harry says. The, the games are off the table. They are on the floor. Um, and the next guess goes to oh, I'm going to get fucking... Yeah, are, gonna, gonna are you going to cover the spread? Me up with the, no, um, <laughs> I, man, I just, uh, so the, 
did you get this from fan day? Like how, you know what I mean? Like when is this information accurate too? Does this include, you know what I mean? Does this include like in game and shit? Like, I don't, can you give me any sort of information my about how under, maybe my, my understanding is this is comprehensive, but like I also, yeah, my understanding is that this is up to date. Uh, I'm going to say eight. I'm going to say eight. Aaron, Aaron maybe, is going yeah. with eighth. Final answer. Still getting etched. Okay, I'm getting the th- the double thumbs, uh, the double thumbs up specifically. So, all right, locking that in for eighth. Uh, and Jason, what seven? You- Sorry, I was going to say seven before Aaron even said eight. So seven. All right, seventh. So, all right, locking that in, and let's do. So, okay, uh, got that. Doing some some basic arithmetic, and that takes me twelve years to do. Uh, Twilight ranks fifth on this list um, of, of all time Fandango advanced oh, ticket yeah. sales. Um, so yeah, yeah, that is, I don't know, fascinating to, to <laughs> I don't we, have a copy. Can we clip the way that Jason said, Oh yeah, just now and make sure that we get that back. I would <laughs> really like that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You don't have a list of four to one. Uh, I do not. Part of me is also like, I mean, in the, in the age of end game, are ticket sales being run like through Fandango as much that, as right? That was kind of my question. And also like, did right. people just pre-order, you know, like a movie like Twilight that was like a book and then like a, Hey, right. go pre, you know, like, yeah, yeah I don't oh, know. Ac- actually here, hold on. I got them. So we oh. have the, so one through four, I've got, yeah, again, specifically time and place. Um, Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. I don't know what order these are in. It might, the it might be one through four. Is it? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Uh, commanding number three. Um, so Star Wars Episode Three: The Dark Knight, Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince, and the the first um, Twilight sequel. Uh, so that seems to be the top five. Yeah, and yeah, that is that. This seems like an a, early, like years ago, sort of thing. Right, and that correlates, um, yeah, to your point, probably the idea of, yeah, like, booking these tickets before there are, like, you know, just, like, this is the the era of, like, midnight screenings, midnight premieres. Um, there's probably something to that where it's just, like, we're, yeah. we're, we're investing in this regardless of, like, when it's taking place because these are built-in fandoms. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Much so to consider. a bunch of people saw that first Twilight movie and were like, oh, we got to fucking rush out to that sequel. We got to know what happens next. Yeah, I think all those movies were popular. Uh, they were, oh, they were extremely successful. I think they yeah, were for all sure, popular. Yes. Yeah. Um, to what extent? Hey, we might find out more about that here in the coming minutes. Uh, but we got a couple questions left. It should be noted, Jason was was closest um, to the actual uh, ranking of that. So Jason got uh, got the point. He's on the board. We are on to the next question. Question four: The first Twilight movie was directed by Catherine Hardwick who has also directed music videos, a handful of them. Um, My question for you, which of the following musical acts has Hardwick not directed a music video for? I'm going to give you three options again. Uh, So option uh, A, The All-American Rejects. Option B, Death Cab for Cutie. Option C, Lady Gaga. So one of these three acts has not had a music video directed by Catherine Hardwick. The first guess goes to Aaron. So Aaron, what do you think? Are you going to cover the spread? Uh, yes, I will guess all three. Uh, so <laughs> Tough but thereby, yeah, yeah. Damn, you got it right. <laughs> I, I've unlocked Metagaming. the cheat code. Uh, now I'm going to go with BE uh, Death Cab. I, yeah. Aaron's going with 
Yeah, going with the de- the Death Cat. Right? Oh, oh! First, I thought you were referencing uh, either a music video that they had filmed or a song of theirs. Oh, Shot in the Dark. I, have I heard that song? It's like, nope. That is Aaron literally saying, "I will shoot you in the dark." As a shot in the dark. Um, Jason is the next guest for this. So, Jason, the floor is yours for a couple seconds. I'm going to say all American. Speak your truth. I'm sorry. I'm going to say all American rejects. Yeah, um, please. I was going to guess Death Cab, but I think Aaron's wrong. I just generally think Aaron's wrong about these things. Wow, no, that's now that's metagaming or podcasting, one of the two, uh, and or oh, I meant to say pod racing. Um, hey. It's one of the three. Um, you be the judge, listener. Harry, what do you think for this? Are you going to cover the spread? Or are you going to go with one of the other? I'm covering the spread, Cody. I'm going with Gaga. Wow, Gaga for Gaga says Harry. Um, you can clip that. Um, you don't have to. We uh, <laughs> unfortunately do not yet have a Hardwick directed music video for. Death Cab for Cutie. Uh, Death Cab for Booty. Just kidding. I like hmm. them. Um, that's, yeah, I don't know. That's all I have to say about that. Aaron got the point. Aaron and Harry are tied with two points. Jason has one point as we head into our fifth and final question. And for this, I will ask you all to think about our absolute favorite topic. That's right. Box office gross. Yeah. Ooh. Uh, your task is to identify the top three earning films in the Twilight franchise. So of the five Twilight films, I will list them off. Um, you pick the top three gross uh, earners at the domestic box office. So just just our fair shitty country. Um, so yeah, again, five films, you're picking. You're trying to pick out the top three. A point will be earned for every film you correctly identify as a top three earner in the Twilight franchise. Um, you're not going to get awarded points for getting them in any correct order. We're just you know, concerned about whether or not they are in the top three. Um, and, uh, and yeah, the nice part about this, um, assuming my logic checks out, everybody, you know, you're guaranteed one point just by virtue of guessing three films. Um, right. Cause there are five total. You have to guess three. So one, at least one of them has got to be right. Uh, and you could get up to three points. So that is such a big swing. Anything could happen. Anything is possible. I'll say it again, but the five films are as follows. Um, one movie per year, but uh, 2008's Twilight, then 2009's Twilight Saga New Moon, 2010's Twilight Saga Eclipse, 2011's Twilight's, uh, The Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 1, and then finally 2012's The Twilight Saga colon Breaking Dawn Dash Part 2. So those are the five films, regular, regular Twilight, then New Moon, then Eclipse, then the two Breaking Dawns. So the top three earners out of the five twilight films so just keeping it within the franchise the first guess is going to go to one jason daphnis um so jason do you have your your picks in mind we have picks in mind cody um our office has has uh deliberated we've uh delegated we've deregulated and we've decided um number one i'm gonna go with uh breaking dawn part two i think Mm -hmm. that just momentum alone i'm gonna say eclipse it's not a space number two. This is not built on anything that I know. I'm just guessing. And mm-hmm. number three, I'm going to guess Breaking Dawn Part One. Gotcha. Okay, so I'm going to read those back just to make sure I heard you and took down the answers correctly. So we have Breaking Dawn Part Two, Eclipse, and Breaking Dawn Part One. Are Correct. those your guesses? Okay, perfect. So locking those in. Moving along to one of the remaining. Two fellas. Which fella is that going to be? It is going to be Aaron. So Aaron, lay on me. 
I'm going for the highest highest earning first is Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 2. For number two, I'm going to go with the original Twilight. For number three, I'm going with Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 1. Interesting. So, like, spots one and two are bookend of the whole. That's that's brave. Yeah. 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 People, I'm checking the comments um, yeah. on the stream. People are calling Aaron very brave uh, for for that. Um, they should. You love to see it. So reading those back, got Breaking Dawn Part 2, the first Twilight, and then Breaking Dawn Part 1. Did I hear those correctly? Nice. All right. Celebratory dance from Aaron um, indicates that we are good to go over to Harry for his guesses. Harry? Yeah, I'm just going to say three movies because Cody very clearly said we didn't have to say the order. Uh, at the top of this, so I'm just going to go ahead and say uh, Breaking Dawn Part 2, Breaking Dawn Part 1, and New Moon. Breaking Dawn Part 2, Breaking Dawn Part 1, and New Moon. Did I hear you correctly, Harry? Yes, thank you. All right, perfect. Thank you for your guesses. I'll do some quick tabulations here, and I believe we've got things correctly sussed out just to get ahead of it. Uh, I will say thank you. This has been Twilove. The top three Twilight franchise earners domestically are, and these are in order, but again, no additional points for the ranking, but just in the order from top to bottom. We have 2010's Eclipse, 2009's New Moon, and 2012's Breaking Dawn Part 2. God damn. How that shakes out. What? um, (laughs) That's very strange. I don't disagree. Um, so how that shakes out with y'all is, um, so Aaron came into the final question with, uh, with two points, got one of the picks correct for the, for this last question, which uh, puts him up to three. Jason came into the final question with one. He picked up two in that last question, which, uh, puts him at three. Harry had two points coming into the last question, got two out of the three with, um, with New Moon and Breaking Dawn part two, which puts him at four and the sole possession of the lead. Harry's love for the Twilight franchise. Uh, one out that sparkly, sparkly. That's boy. right, baby. That first movie yeah. rocks, dude. I'm Truly one, I'm one rewatch away from giving that a four star. Uh, I fucking love that. That first Do one. It, coward. Uh, Carter, Carter Burwell also great score in that movie. Um, so shout outs to, uh, the first Twilight movie. That's, that's what I'm going to, that's my pop off. That, Go watch that's, it. Your, that's your POP. All right. Nice. Perfect. Back to you, Jason. He got a good POP out of that one. He's got to go shit his pants. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to Trilove. Uh, you can check out the Trilons schedule at trilon.org. See if there are any movies playing that you want to see and uh, maybe get in touch with us about talking about them. We are very open door for this podcast, as long as you don't seem too shitty, I guess. Just get in touch with us at Trilove Podcast to find out more about what it's about and about what kind of movies we cover. Um, stay tuned to the feed for more movies that maybe you have seen and go back to the backlog. All of them are there. I haven't allowed any of the server or hosting space to die out. So we have like 250 some episodes all movies all across the spectrum all kinds of shit uh check it out anytime you can it's a lot of fun i i don't know about you guys i listen to episodes if i'm going to rewatch one of the movies we covered i listen to the episode first just to remind myself where where i was at in in you know time oh, in nice. my life it, it's it's a good it's a pleasant experience um but for right now you should uh, have a pleasant experience of your own and find me on twitter at uh, uh, uh jason at nintendoofus at Jason uh, uh, Nintendo. I didn't who cares? It's Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> I'm just yeah, yeah, yeah. Who? You know what? You're. Hey, Jason, retweet. Uh, dead yeah, joke. Twitter's gonna dice him. Um, 
thank you for listening. Uh, I've been Cody Narvis, and you can find me. You can technically find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH, or you can find me on Blue Sky at Cody Narvison. Uh, I've been Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at Punish Take. My name is Aaron. I've run off into the woods. You'll never find me. What you're trying to do is impossible. You insist on chasing a killer who probably does not exist. And even if he exists, you will never find him. <laughs>